Needlove cries to God from our poverty. Giftlove longs to serve or even to suffer for God. Appreciative love says, we give thanks to thee for thy great glory. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 3, The Four Loves, Chapter 2, Likings and Loves for the Subhuman, Part 1. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack, of course, is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where three friends, myself, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. But with the right medication, we won't break down much anymore. (laughs) This season, we're talking about love, slowly working our way through The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, the book he writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. So, how is everybody? How was your All Hallows' Eve? That's a wonderful question. What's All Hallows' Eve? All Hallows' Day. Hallow is saint or holy. So, Hallow Evening is Halloween. Hallow Even. And so mm-hmm. that's October 31st. Um, Reformation Day for uh, those of us colonists out here. Um, <laughs> and All Hallows' Day is All Saints' Day, November 1st. And then um, November 2nd is All Souls' Day. So we remember the great saints on November 1st, and we remember all the blessed departed on November 2nd. So how was y'all's? Well, November 2nd, All Souls' Day, I went to the young adult group that's here and shout out to one of the individuals. Her name's Michelle. I, I show up and um, I was introducing myself. I haven't admittedly been there in about five months. And so <laughs> it's way past my bedtime. It's like, so they start at like seven. <laughs> they start at seven. They finish <laughs> at 9.30. It's terrible. And she comes up and she, and she was like, oh, I love Pints with Jack. It's so fantastic. And so, Michelle, it was great to meet you. Uh, thanks for the warm welcome to the group. But yeah, no, overall, I'm doing well. I just got back from yesterday, the great divorce from the Fellowship of Performing Arts, who, which is directed by Max McLean, McLean and how we've had him on this show in August 30th. Andrew, you interviewed him and the play was absolutely incredible. I mean, it was, it really did blow my mind. I had seen the virtual one. What a blessing mm-hmm. that they did that for us. Mm-hmm. Anyone who saw the virtual one, go see it in person. It is a very different feel. There's, it's, it, you're constrained with the virtual. And it was so beautiful in person. And just four actors blew my mind. Yeah. That was, I had a marvelous time when they were in, in Washington, D.C. Um, and I got to know the guy who plays George McDonald uh, fairly well. Uh, he chatted with me some. Um, I did the when Max was on the road with Most Reluctant Convert and Great Divorce was playing here in D.C. Uh, at the Lansburn Theater. I was blessed to uh, to do the talkbacks, the little brief mm-hmm. ten minute Q and A after the shows. So that was great fun. The dinner I mentioned, I, I thanked him for coming on the show and being with you. And then he mentioned the the funny episode with the Brit in the Narnian one. And he, I, don't, I don't know if he's referring to an episode on our podcast or someone's else podcast with you, David, but you were the funny Brit. <laughs> I think he was referring to my appearance on the Talking Beasts podcast. They invited me on to talk about the movie as well. Well, I'm so glad that you got to meet him and you got to see uh, see that that performance. What have you been up to, David? Well, you asked about Halloween. Uh, I never cease to be amazed at how enthusiastic Americans are about this holiday. Uh, so <laughs> the, the number of people dressing up and uh, my wife insisted on putting Alexander into a costume. He screamed relentlessly. I have never been more proud of him in my life. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I wanted to give a shout out to our first patron supporter in Denmark. Oh, Anna just joined this week. Oh, fantastic. Hello. Here's to you, Anna. (laughs) And um, by the way, David, you can just shut up about Halloween. I got two words for you, Guy Fox, okay? (laughs) Or bonfire night, right? (laughs) Indeed. We could have had a Catholic monarchy again. Oh, well. (laughs) The other thing I actually want to say about uh, Patreon, uh, yesterday at the time of recording, uh, we had a happy hour. And I did a video chat with our patron supporters and we chatted about The Four Loves and uh, about half the people had seen the Lewis movie. And uh, yeah, it's delightful. Good time was had by all. Oh, fantastic. I'm so bummed I missed that. <laughs> and 
Andrew, you preached today and I thought of the four loves because I'm assuming our lectionaries are synchronized at this point because we had, uh, for the first reading, it was Elijah and the widow. First Kings 7. Yeah. And then in the gospel, we had Jesus and the widow's might. Mark 12. It, it, it put me in mind of need love, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the first widow <laughs> needed to receive from God. And the gospel reading about gift love and ultimately pointing towards appreciative love, worship of God. Wow. Okay. Well, maybe you should have preached this morning. <laughs> well done. Way to apply what we're learning to real life events. Well, I was honored to preach at All Saints uh, Church in Chevy Chase, Maryland, and I was their seminary last Chase, year. Chevy Chase, Maryland. Yeah. 25 <laughs> minutes drive. sound fun. Yeah. yeah. Right at the end of Embassy Row, actually. So we drive by all the different embassies on our way there. Um, and yes, we're, we both use, our churches both use the Revised Common Lectionary, and so I did preach about that. I even bought some um, some rec- replica widow's mites. Um I didn't think about the loves. I was thinking about uh, Lewis's quote of Mere Christianity, how he wants the whole tooth out. He, we have to give him all. And so I read that. And then the very last bit, um, submit yourselves, you know, and uh, give up everything and and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. So uh, so that's how I ended. Um, my sermon went a little long. Episcopal sermons are generally seven to 10 minutes and mine was 25. <laughs> Yours went long, Andrew? <laughs> I know, shocker, isn't it? <laughs> Had him, though. I, too, went to see Most Reluctant Convert. In fact, I texted Max from the theater, and he was in California, and I was in the East Coast, and so I actually, he texted back and said, you're seeing it before I am. So uh, that has that was great. Um, shout out to Annie Nardone, our supporter. Um, she's been so supportive of her father as he struggles with some uh, some issues, and she just posted... Uh, on Facebook today, um, on the 7th of of November. And so we're praying for Annie's father for sure. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we're on the countdown less than a month before the C.S. Lewis retreat at Camp Allen in Navasota, Texas. This is central Texas, uh, not far from A&M University. The C.S. Lewis Foundation has been coming there for years and years and years. And this is how I first got involved with them. Christian and I have both been invited to speak. And I finally got my... uh, talks uh, into them. And so uh, I will be doing a breakout session called Surprised by Love, the Literary Love Life of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. Um, And I'll also, we're focusing on reflections on the Psalms um, and uh, this time. And so I'll be giving a plenary session along with Greg Costuna, Gregory Costuna and Holly Ordway. Mine's called I Lift Up My Eyes, the Psalms of Ascent as Pilgrim practice. So we'll have fun digging into Lewis's book and exploring the Psalms together in December. And listeners, if you have a chance to come and get to us in Central Texas, fly in and out of of Houston maybe, and come see us on December 3rd and 4th. And you can find a link to that from our webpage's events page, which is pastorjack.com slash events. And cslewis.org will have it there too, or just, uh, just look things up. Well, I want to know what everybody is drinking today. I think we probably have a wide variety. Um, <laughs> David is in the spirit of the chapter. What are you drinking? Yes, I've switched to wine Ooh. for today. I'm drinking a claret. Oh. Uh, it's a St. Francis claret. Oh, are you uh, are you too um, blockish to know whether it's a good one or a bad one? Oh, yes. This, this is far too good to give debates. <laughs> we shouldn't waste that on you. Yeah, that's great. How about you, Matt? Uh, I have another one, probably for the next few weeks, I'll be drinking these, the Lost Distillery series. So it's not like a known name. It's one from 150 years ago, and we'll see how it tastes. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, I have my Pints with Jack uh, mug, and I'm drinking another cup of PG Tips. It's gotten chilly around here, but uh, I was inspired by Max McLean, and no spoilers, but um, early on in the movie, uh, Max's character, who's talking about uh, his conversion... Uh, walks uh, out of Maudlin and goes down to the pub and he walks into the White Horse Inn, which is right there on High Street, right down from the marvelous Bodleian, uh, er, the marvelous um, Blackwell's bookshop, four-story bookshop and across from the from the Sheldonian. And he has one of these, what do you call these? These dimple mugs or 
Yeah, I don't know what the proper name is. Yeah, it's a pint glass. And so he's drinking just this lovely amber-looking uh, ale at the White Horse. And I nudged Kristen when we're in the movie theater. And I said, I've sat in that very booth. I've been in that booth. So in honor of Max's delicious-looking pint, I hope it was a real pint. And I hope he drank it while filming. Uh, I've got a pint of Old Speckled Hen. And I finally convinced, finagled my uh, my British dean of our seminary, uh, I did him a big favor, and he asked me what I wanted in return. I said, I want a proper ale in our campus pub. And so our campus pub, 1823, just started stocking Old Speckled Hen at my request. So Well done. Making the world a better place. Indeed, one pint at a time. <laughs> so today, we're glad to toast our new Gold Level supporter who has just upgraded her support from Silver Level. That's Hannah Cunningham. And so a pint with Pints with Jack Glass is now on its way to your home, and we'd like to offer you this toast. Hannah, for your deep commitment, for your giving what you can to us in the spirit of the widow and her might, for your uh, gracious support of us, we say cheers to you. Cheers. 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 And I have no ding. So, Matt, that's going to be you again. Ooh, we timed that well. <laughs> Ooh. Those are both quite good, and my pint is perfect. David, do you understand a proper pint to mean an imperial pint or just a good I one? I just mean one that's good. Okay. <laughs> All right. I got in a fight with my rector the other day about that. All right. So what have we covered so far in this book? And by the way, thank you to our listeners. There's been some great feedback so far in our first few episodes. So where have we been, David? Well, we've covered the first chapter of The Four Loves, which was the introduction. And there, Lewis dissected love in a few different ways, focusing primarily on need love and gift love. And he spent some time defending the fact that uh, need love actually really is love. And in last week's episode, he also identified two different kinds of closeness to God. Nearness by likeness, which is baked in and immutable. And nearness by approach, which is something much more changeable and involves the human will. And then towards the end of that chapter, uh, Lewis told us that when loves are at their best, they have a nearness by likeness, making it very easy to mistake them for something divine. And so he warns us that when our loves become gods, they become demons and even cease to be loves at all. Guys, anything to add? I just add the quote because it's going to come up multiple times in this week and most likely next week as well as we do part two of this. The highest does not stand without the lowest. This is something Lewis is clearly bringing up multiple times, and it's an important part of what he is unpacking here. And so it was first reference, if you guys remember, in terms of saints that may at their highest potentially be able to offer a genuine gift love to God, but would immediately profess their utter dependence on God, that need love. And so the highest stands with the lowest. And so as we turn today, which we'll get to in a second, uh, we're going to leverage pleasure to actually better understand the need, love, gift, love, and add a third classification. But we'll save that for later. Hmm. What about you, Andrew? I love that Lewis says, not good or bad, but good, better, and best. Um, mm. That breaking down the binaries is one of the most important thought tools that Lewis has given. Uh, this highest without the lowest, to me, reminds me of that wonderful idea of transposition, where Lewis takes a lofty idea and puts it into really kind of uh, accessible language. And um, I'll argue that to some degree, uh, no high concept is valid unless it can be understood at a very basic level. And however lofty an idea, its roots come from the ground. And uh, we can get there we can, to the high if we start here with the low. No, that's not true of everything, but I think that that kind of helps. And Lewis is such a great guide at getting these two concepts of showing us where the high idea comes from and bringing it down to our level. And that's, I think, part of the reason why we're still uh, toasting him and, uh, and thinking about him and reading him. And today we move on to chapter two, and we're going to be taking, I think, three episodes to work through it. Uh, it has the catchy title of The Likings and Loves of for the Subhuman. Uh, so he's talking about liking things and loving things which are less than human. And by the way, listeners, let me just encourage you again. These first two chapters are really carefully thought, carefully reasoned, and he's providing us these kind of philosophical categories and tools with which we will explore the four natural loves. So stick with it. Read it out loud with a friend. Go back and reread if you didn't catch something or if you read it and your eyes 
uh, started glazing over. I think it really will help. And here is my 100-word summary of the text we're going to be looking at today. In the first part of chapter 2, Lewis considers pleasures. He divides pleasures into those which must be preceded by desire, need pleasures, and those which don't require it, pleasures of appreciation. He says, need pleasures die on us quickly, whereas pleasures of appreciation are longer-lasting, and they make us feel like we somehow owe the object in question our attention and reverence. Jack then connects need pleasures to need loves of chapter 1, and says that pleasures of appreciation both foreshadow beauty, and also fosters a kind of disinterested love, which Lewis adds to our list of categories, and he calls it appreciative love. David, what I just learned hearing you say that we're doing three episodes on this is I am three weeks ahead, not two. <laughs> I read this whole part because I was having a hard time understanding parts of it. And I was like, all right, I got to go speed forward to be able to make sure I can unpack this better. And I think it's the first time I've read ahead. I was going to say, this is going to teach you to be conscientious. <laughs> well, it's uh, as we're recording this, it's the day of, uh, of daylight savings time. So it's fall back. And so Matt has taken that extra hour and read a, read a chapter ahead. So here's to Boom. you. Good for you. I'm going to take and a drink And in shock, we all fall back. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well said, David. Not as good as your all Greek comment, but this is still good. I've always wanted to have a fallback party that started at 2 a.m. and ended at 2 a.m., Uh, uh, it'll take no time at all (laughs) shall indeed all right come on let's discuss this week's text okay so lewis begins chapter two by pointing out the distinction between like and love and he notes that in languages uh, several languages uh, there don't actually exist separate words for those two concepts and he says that while the pedants and the overly pious might demand a strict demarcation between liking and loving he notes that we nevertheless still talk about loving things such as food and hobbies. And he says that's because there's a continuity between our elementary liking of things and our loves for people. And as I was reading this, I I wondered, did your parents ever pick you up on using words like and love interchangeably? Uh, You know, my parents weren't pedants. (laughs) Were Were they overly pious? (laughs) Oh, my parents were not pious at all. (laughs) They were underly pious. no, they they didn't do that. Did yours? My dad didn't do it with like and love, but he did with hate. If I ever said I hated something, he would just comment, there's not a whole lot worse you can go beyond hate. Mm-hmm. So make sure you reserve it for something that truly deserves it. Wow. How very British. <laughs> not don't hate. God doesn't like that. But you know, make sure that you use it properly. Exactly. Mine never did, and I'm feeling left out right now. Just another thing to add to my childhood trauma. <laughs> if your mother ever listens to this episode, thanks, mom. Then she'll find out. <laughs> uh, I did also chuckle myself as I read this section because I thought he's talking about like and love, but he missed out one like, like, which is what you do to a girl in high school. Do you, do you like her or do you like, like her? Oh. It's not quite love, but it's more than like. Yeah, I only like, liked one girl in high school. We didn't, she didn't like, like, like back in the last millennium. Sorry. <laughs> well, quoting the maxim from the Imitation of Christ about the highest not standing about the lowest, Jack says that he wants to talk about what he calls mere likings. Hmm. And since liking something means to take pleasure in it, that's where he begins. He begins with talking about pleasures. And he notes that pleasures can be bifurcated, firstly, into those that are automatic pleasures in their own right. And... Uh, this other group where these pleasures need to be preceded in some way by some sort of desire. And he calls these pleasures of appreciation and need pleasures. As Andrew said in, in the intro, he's giving us a lot of categories here. Uh, so, gentlemen, how would you unpack those two? What does he mean by these two terms? You said it pretty well with the need pleasure of it's a desire is preceding a pleasure. And so probably the best way to unpack it is with an example. And he gives a really as I watch you take a sip and a drink right there, David, you might've been thirsty and uh, you had this desire for it and you wanted some sort of drink to quench that thirst. And so as you took the sip, the pleasure came because of the desire that was leading up to the pleasure. Hmm. I would actually say this one is a little bit more complicated, but keep going. (laughs) As I was saying, I was like, yeah, that's actually, there could be a pleasure of appreciation since you're drinking a glass of wine. The example he gives in the book is uh, a drink from the tap, 
when you come in on a hot day after mowing the grass. That you are you are ravenously thirsty, and then suddenly a glass of tap water is the greatest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, if you want to know about Lewis mowing the lawn, uh, read his his uh, diaries. Uh, there's a volume called All My Road Before Me. And from 1922 to 1927, while he was finishing up as an undergraduate and getting his position at Maudlin, um, before he was famous or published or anything, he kept a daily diary that he would read to Mrs. Moore. And it's filled with so many instances of him getting hot water bottles for her, mowing the yard, doing the dishes, and just all the details of his domestic life, playing badminton. So uh, if that's the sort of thing that you're interested in, uh, I would certainly get that. I love here, it's in page 13 in my edition, um, bottom of 12, top of 13, Lewis says, when need pleasures are in question, we tend to make statements about ourselves in the past tense. When appreciative pleasures are in question, we tend to make statements about the object in the present tense. So that to me is a helpful distinction. So, ah, man, I really needed that drink of water. Um, But I really love the smell. Now, he talks about peas all the time, and I've never (laughs) smelled peas um, uh, apart from them being cooked. Are the blossoms, are you familiar, David? Is that pretty common? Yeah, definitely in my childhood, it was something that people would often do. They would have uh, a little garden and it would typically have tomatoes and some kind of beans or peas. And I know the smell he's talking about and it is quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my favorite description of it is when he says that uh, you are in want of nothing, you're completely contented. And then this thing arrives like an unsolicited, super-added gift. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, having never smelled peas, I did uh, spend a lot of time in the South. And uh, in Texas, they had star jasmine. And there's just a couple of weeks when that blooms. And it kind of catches you after you've walked past or before you walk to it. And you just get this whiff on the wind. And for me, it's as, as intoxicating and enchanting. And it's like, oh, I'm just glad that there is such a smell, even if I don't get to smell it all year round. (laughs) Well, Matt gave the example of me tasting some wine earlier. And I think that's actually a good example of the complicating factor of these categories. Uh, Because Lewis says that the waters can be somewhat muddied. Because let's say I was expecting water, and I got either a nice beer, a nice coffee, glass of wine. Then I've both had a need pleasure and a pleasure of appreciation. Mm -hmm. And he also gives another example as to how this gets a little bit complicated because he says, with addiction, a pleasure of appreciation can turn into a need pleasure. Mm-hmm. And he gives the example of a glass of wine and that the alcoholic isn't actually really enjoying it. It's just better than remaining sober. Right. Or or an antidote to the great pain that they're feeling from, from whatever w- level of withdrawal. And I see in the notes, but I also thought the same thing. Lewis is probably here thinking of his brother Warren, um, who was not a constant um, uh, heavy drinker, but he was a binge drinker. And it was a a great trouble. Um, In fact, Walter Hooper told me uh, that when, uh, when he went to clean out the kilns, there were on top of the sconces, on top of the bookcases, hundreds and hundreds of little empty liquor bottles, vodka and gin bottles, and dozens and dozens of AA pamphlets. And you can just picture Jack and and Joy trying to help Warney get sober. sober. And uh, Warney probably tossed the bottles and the pamphlets uh, up there himself. Yeah, he had, he had gone past um, appreciating a good, a good um, a glass of wine. Um, so God, God bless him. And that is one of the reasons that we drink on the show. It is to try and model some temperance that God's good gifts can be enjoyed, but they only make sense within a framework of moderation. Well, and it's our good friend Chesterton who says that we should praise the God who gave us beer and wine by not drinking too much of them. Indeed. Amen to Chesterton. (laughs) Now, even just by calling one of these types of pleasures a need pleasure, Lewis says that the reader is going to connect it with the need loves that we spoke about in the previous chapter. And he knows something that's kind of curious because in that chapter, we heard about people being tempted to uh, diminish, dispraise the need loves and praise the gift loves, mm-hmm. uh, even so far as to say that need loves aren't actually loves. But he says here we've got the opposite problem uh, that people have a tendency to praise need pleasures 
and dispraise pleasures of appreciation. Mm -hmm. But the question is, why is that? Well, I think the word would be what, like natural. If you think of need pleasures, they come across as more natural. At least the the ones that he gave examples of or is thinking of, you can't really get mad at a desire for water, but you could see an appreciative pleasure. Someone who genuinely appreciates and enjoys a fine wine is excessive or gluttonous. It'd be very easy to throw that into that category. Well, I also think that it's easy and perhaps too easy, and it helps us to create these kind of false binaries. And it's another one of these thought categories, um, like good, better, best, um, rather than good or bad, good, better, best, or good, worse, worst, um, is a much th more thoughtful way of approaching this. And I get this from Lewis. This, uh, this quote in this chapter, um, every single one of my students, as long as I've taught, can recite this from memory. He says, the human mind is generally far more eager to praise and dispraise than to describe and define. It's easy to praise and dispraise, and it also has the added benefit of allowing us to kind of feel superior. It allows roots of bitterness to grow up. But it's hard to describe, and it's hard to define, and to be precise, and to say it was what, it's what the fox said, to say about writing, to say the thing you mean, the whole of it, and nothing else. That is the true art and joy of words. And uh, this is a phrase that I commend to our listeners not praise or dispraise, but describe and define. Get busy about that and most of your conflicts will go away. Mm -hmm. And I would say the truth is very often revealed when you're forced to do those things sure. before actually arguing your case, assuming a set of definitions. And how many of those quarrels are miscommunications? Um, mm -hmm. And if I describe and define what's going on in a quarrel with my wife, usually we we get to the point where it's like, oh, I didn't mean that at all. And You'll find out why you were wrong much quicker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, speaking of defining and describing, yeah. Matt used the word natural there. He describes uh, these pleasures as being natural. And Lewis, in parentheses, puts afterwards um, a word to conjure with. Yes. Now, this is, this is sort of what I mean about, I think, the four loves needed a little bit more work. Mm -hmm. He doesn't unpack what that means. Matt, what do you think he means by that? Matt Googled this. Matt Googled this. Wow. I know. Well done. Well done. New man. It's a Change sign man. of the end times. <laughs> it just, at least the thing that I had come up with, there actually wasn't a lot on that expression, but the expression is used for something that's an important or influential word in something. So I assumed here he was referring to in the Christian faith when we're talking about love, understanding natural is important when understanding loves. The key idea that I saw in conjuring is is the fact that you can create something out of it. Actually, the next book that Lewis released after The Four Loves was Studies in Words, which Andrew has just pushed up in front of his camera. Would you like Making me to bring sure we out, see it. <laughs> I, would you like me to pull out the first editions, the ones for sale and the ones on my shelf? And there's the very first chapter of Studies in Words is, let's see how many pages... Uh, the very first chapter is 50 pages long about the word nature. And this is what I think he's pointing at, the fact that this is a wide semantic range. It's very elastic. Mm -hmm. So when we can praise Needloves for being natural, well, what do we actually even mean? Mm -hmm. I would use the word, by the way, inherent, maybe, to us, or instinctual. Somewhat like the desire for water is a natural desire, an inherent desire, an instinctual. I don't know. That's my guess. I'm going to push back on that uh -huh. with the uh -huh. mere Christianity chapter where he talks about sex. <laughs> that is also very natural, yeah. but that itself is uh, wildly in excess of what's really demanded from the function. Well, well and I'm going to say, what do you mean by instinctual and what do you mean by inherent? <laughs> <laughs> and what use do you have to use those words? So between Kirk and Surprised I was by Joy, say, all right, Kirks, <laughs> and and Ramandu, right? Uh, who says to, when when Eustace says, "Well, the the a star is only a flaming ball of of, of gas," and Ramandu says, "Even in your world, child, a star is that's not what a star is; it's what it's made of." And so here you go. It's once you actually start playing with your terms. It can devolve a little into, into pickiness, but I think that it can also arm us to really speak about the concepts that we actually mean. 
Andrew, do you do that with your wife and you're fighting? Define that. Well, now define that. Now define that. But what do you mean with that? <laughs> Distinguo, Kristen. Distinguo. <laughs> it drives her crazy, but sometimes I do because, and it's not because I'm being uh, picky or a jerk, although I'm being picky and a jerk often enough. You, you just really want to sleep on the couch that night. <laughs> No, she's a broad picture thinker and she gets the whole of everything. She has this incredible grasp and she gets all of it in her head and she wakes up with it all going. And I'm kind of a just the next the next thing sequentially in line. And so sometimes she'll use a word um, that she doesn't really mean because she's just in a hurry to get to the big idea. Um, and actually her way is is better than mine. But yes, I, I do make myself quite uh, quite annoying a bit of an ass when I'm like, okay, well, that's not really what's in the offing here. And she's like, yeah, well, you know what I mean. And I said, well, define it, describe. That's what Jack told us to do. <laughs> and then I do sleep on the couch. Yeah, not really. Well, I did want to just highlight the Stoics were brought up again. They've already been brought up in this book. Uh, but uh, these are typically the guys that probably taught the fox, maybe. Yes, absolutely. He was, uh, was, he was a Stoic. And yeah, he brings up, oh, we're hearing cameos. I know Alexander <laughs> Is that Alexander Charbet? To... <laughs> he wants to answer this question. Yeah. <laughs> he, he has his thoughts. We, we've been talking about it earlier in the week. Taylor, don't edit those out. <laughs> yeah. That's the best no. part of the show for my uh -huh. money. Well, before we wrap up the section, I just wanted to explain who the Stoics were, if anybody didn't know, because it's kind of important, uh, particularly on this point, because... The key idea of the Stoics was that we need to submit to destiny and natural law, that we need to foster an indifference both to pleasure and to pain. Uh, and so that ties in with, the, with uh, denigrating pleasures uh, and appreciative pleasures in particular, because the Stoics wanted you to be indifferent to them all. Now, I want to, I got to ask you, did you get that from Louisiana, David? I did indeed. Ah, wonderful. So let us recommend to you again, listeners, um, Diana Glyer says that's that's uh, one of my native gifts is to give praise to everybody else. Uh, Arend Smildi, uh, who is in Holland, has done an amazing site called louisiana.nl, and he has annotated many, many of Lewis's books with footnotes and uh, will explain some of these terms. In fact, I got to spend a wonderful uh, couple of days with him uh, several years ago, and we tracked down... Um, one of the sources of one of the McDonald quotes or something. So yeah, so he's got um, footnotes, um, chapter by chapter footnotes on the four loves. And so louisiana.nl, highly recommend. And Aaron Smildy is doing incredibly important work in the Lewis field. And so to wrap up that section, Lewis is saying that we shouldn't try ranking pleasures. He says the reality is just far too complicated. And the very fact that we've seen addiction can turn an appreciative pleasure into a need pleasure should be warning for us enough. Absolutely. And just before we go on to the next section, I just want to say that this ability to, to define and describe instead of praise or dispraise can really tamp down a lot of the more high-throated debates in our current age. Um, if we actually came to the right, decided on what our terms were, we might find that we're a lot closer to each other. And here, again, Lewis has some help for us. But let's move on. Yeah. The point that Lewis has wanted us to get out of this chapter so far is that pleasures, and hence likings, foreshadow characteristics of our loves. Remember that earlier quotation about there being a continuity. And so he then begins to do some analysis, first of all, on need pleasures. And he notes that when we talk about need pleasure, we typically make statements about ourselves in the past tense. Mm -hmm. uh, however, when talking about appreciative pleasures, we usually make statements about the object in the present tense. Uh, Andrew gave a few examples of that earlier. And he says, it's easy to see why we do this. Uh, but how would you guys answer that question? When I first read this, it was really interesting to have a nice little rule to determine you know, something probably uh, uh, one kind or the other. But he says, it's easy, why we, easy to see why we do this. How would you explain why? I wasn't sure if I agreed with it. So I'm just hmm. curious if you guys unpack it a little bit further, if I'm missing something. Because I feel like I could say this water is amazing while drinking it. And then after I've drank it, I can say, oh, I drove that water was delightful. I could say the exact same thing about appreciative love. I wouldn't even think to distinguish. I'd be like, oh, that wine was amazing. Or I could say this wine. It's like when I'm saying it, um, I don't know. I didn't really, I thought it was too nuanced almost. 
You know, I'm going to go with Lewis on this, and it reminds me a little bit of what happens at the beginning of Abolition of Man, where he says that the waterfall is not sublime, the effect it produces on me is sublime. And so when it's a need, I think it's a lot more visceral and maybe even a lot more animal. And so when it's a need, it's usually about me and my need. And when it's um, when it's appreciative, it's about the object. And um, if I am correct, which of course I am, um, <laughs> I love it. I'm also as humble as I am correct. Uh, ask anybody; I've told them. Um, <laughs> this book is a prose rewrite of "Till We Have Faces," and part of Orwell's problem is that she can only see Psyche in terms of her own need love for her, and she doesn't appreciate Psyche for who she is. Now, there's that one moment that where she says she had always that same kind of beauty that was appropriate to its age, but she didn't care that Psyche was beautiful. She only cared that Psyche's beauty and, and loveliness could be turned towards her. She didn't have any grace about saying, I'm so glad that you get to be married. I'm so glad that Eros, you know, the son of the god of the mountain, I'm so glad that he gets to enjoy you and he gets to love you in a way that I could never. Um, there's just not any of that. And Orwell is this aching example of need love and this aching lack of appreciative love. And because people kind of miss that, Lewis, I think, is spelling it out here. So for me, I like that distinction. I think the key part there is me and my need. Mm -hmm. I think that that's that's the driving force. Mm -hmm. And I'd also say so. So that's why we refer to uh, ourselves because it's about us, mm -hmm. not the thing, not the object. And we speak about it in the past tense because we have consumed it. Because mm -hmm. the loving and the devouring are the same. Yes, yes, from Lewis's best book. <laughs> but we also think about Screw Tape, where he wants um, cattle to feed on. Right, mm -hmm. and God wants um, servants who who can become sons, um, and so it's either turning inward towards me, need love, or turning outwards towards God, appreciative love. And appreciative love means that I am going to appreciate and give thanks for something. And what will quickly happen, and this is the gospel move of the passage, if I feel thankful for something, even if I am the hardest bitten atheist. Pretty soon, I'm going to want to give thanks to something or someone. Lewis, next up, he quotes a Shakespearean sonnet. And I looked this one up. It was 129. Yes, I love this And, one. well, I, I, that's good because I was looking for you to explain <laughs> what he's doing in this. <laughs> yes, the expensive spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action. And to last and lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame. Past reason hunted and no sooner had past reason hated as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad. And then he concludes, all this the world well knows. You can't see it, but I'm clicking. <laughs> <laughs> all this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. So past reason hunted and no sooner had past reason hated as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad. What Shakespeare's saying is the expense of spirit in a waste of shame, that waste is a pun, is lust in action. And lust is the counterfeit that serves us. Love, even sexual love, is the it's the ideal that turns towards the other. And remember our old distinction, and it's in the, the talks that became the four loves, to go out of ourselves towards the other. Shakespeare is pointing towards lust as something that is internal. And Lewis is pointing towards appreciative love as something that is external. Does that help? That does a lot. Makes sense to I'd me. I'd love you to repeat that for the, the stay it one more time, the sonnet. The expensive spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action, until action, lust is perjured, murdered, murders, <laughs> bloody, full kidding. of blame, um, uh, despised, cruel. Yeah, there's a couple of lines I don't remember anymore. Um, past <laughs> you don't actually hunted. have to. I can't okay. <laughs> No, but it's a brilliant one, and it really describes the human condition well, and it's part of why we still read him. Sonnet 129. Um, take a few minutes, get, a, get adjusted to the Elizabethan language, and I think that you'll see what Lewis is going for here. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes. 
Uh, and I did actually find it helpful reading the whole thing because Lewis then takes that idea and says that even the most innocent of need pleasures have something of a similar quality. He says that they die on us mm-hmm. with an extraordinary abruptness and completely. Mm-hmm. And he gives a few examples to prove his point. He says that once we have slaked our ravenous thirst from the scullery tap, mm-hmm. we don't care about it anymore at all until the next time we're thirsty. And he says that the way that we respond to the smell of frying food mm-hmm. varies greatly depending upon whether we ourselves have just eaten. If you're really hungry, the effect is magical. Yes. And he also gives one more example, yes. and I've had some very strange interpretations from people on this one. So I'm just going to quote it and yes. see what you guys make of it. Lois says, If you'll forgive me for citing the most extreme instance of all, have there not, for most of us, been moments in a strange town when the sight of the word gentleman over a door has roused a joy almost worthy of celebration in verse? <laughs> I thought this was. I thought this was. Ob- what do you think he's talking about? I thought it was obvious, but now I hear there's a debate. Clearly, maybe not. I just interpret it as a gentleman sign over a bathroom, and yes. you have to go to the bathroom super badly. You're like, yes. oh, <laughs> there it is. Which was me during the play that had no intermission, and I had a cocktail beforehand <laughs> with uh, with my plus one. I was like, oh man, I should not have drank in that cocktail. Because, uh, and then I looked oh over God. to see if I could go to the, sneak out and just go to the bathroom and be that person because it was really disrupting my ability to focus. And I look at the door, I'd be going out, and there's Max McLean. I'm like, all right, can't get up now. <laughs> <laughs> you should. Have just said, "Hey, I'm looking for that sign that says gentleman that arouses joy," and he would have pointed you the way. <laughs> I wish I would have read this beforehand. Oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many times I popped into a pub in England and just said, with my rising inflection, "Sir gents." <laughs> yes. Um, well, and this is Lewis of the walking tour, right? This is Lewis mm-hmm. who does lots of tramping. And uh, and I think that this is, yes, the highest doesn't stand without the lowest, but the lowest doesn't stand without the highest as well. So yeah, this is, I think, one of my favorite examples. So Lewis concluded that need pleasures die on us very quickly, but he says that appreciative pleasures, pleasures of appreciation, are not, aren't, they're not like that at all. And he says that they don't just gratify the senses, but they claim by right our appreciation. And he gives an example of a wine connoisseur drinking claret, which is why I made this my choice for today. Lewis writes, he feels that here is a wine that deserves his full attention, that justifies all the tradition and skill that have gone into its making, and all the years of training that have made his own palate fit to judge it. There is even a glimmering of unselfishness in his attitude. He wants the wine to be preserved and kept in good condition, not entirely for his own sake. Even if he were on his deathbed and never going to drink wine again, he would be horrified at the thought of this vintage being spilled or spoiled or even drunk by clods like myself, who can't tell a good claret from a bad. <laughs> I would actually say that's somewhat true with me now with scotch because of pints with Jack. The fact that I drink them all neat now, I want to actually savor the flavors. I definitely don't have the need where it's like some deep desire beforehand. It's just when it pops up and there's an opportunity to to drink a scotch, I'll have a scotch and I'll be very appreciative for it. And the only difference I would push back on on Lewis that I don't do is if if I have friends over that can't even appreciate a, a bit of Macallan 18 I still have, I just love to share it with others hope with the hope and excitement that they will be able to experience the joy that I experience with the sip of it. Serve them the at 12. Least, <laughs> <laughs> or at least serve them small. It is short. small. Yes. Yeah. You have saved the good scotch for last. My uncle Dennis, the first time he gave me Laphroaig, he got me to smell the bottle first of all. He says, what do you think of that? And I went, yummy. And he sighed, I think a little unhappily, and then poured me a glass. <laughs> so I think that the words die on us are a huge clue. And let me see if I can pull something together here from the overall kind of move of Lewis's mind. Bring die it, on bring us. It. Preach. And you know, for the need pleasures to die on us reminds me very much of Lewis's relationship to joy, right? He goes and he pursues the sensation of joy, and then he can't repeat it. It dies on him. And so he's, he even misses the experience of joy. Then he misses the memory of the experience of joy. Then he misses the longing after the memory of the experience of joy. This is what's going on with the toy garden. And so need pleasures are self-centered, as is joy and longing. 
But appreciative pleasures are others-centered, which is the same as love. So remember my distinction. Lewis doesn't care for joy except that it drives us to love. And the self needs to be abandoned, and we need to turn outward towards the other. And this is the move that makes Lewis admit that there's a God and helps him in his conversion. So I would probably go so far as to say that the best job of the need pleasures, perhaps the only job, is to drive us towards appreciative pleasures, to force us out of ourselves and towards the other, and then maybe, maybe even vaguely towards the image of the one that made the other, right? So I think that there's a gospel message ringing in appreciative pleasure. And that if need pleasure does its job, it should die on us. And the resurrection of that is appreciative pleasure. So I think that you see all of Lewis's theology here, and it's certainly what's happening and what's so pro- profoundly missing in Orwell until we have faces. <laughs> you I couldn't think- resist it at the end. No, it's been there all along. I had to keep it out for the for most of the time. Two comments. I'm out of alcohol with my drinking game that I drink every time Andrew references the four loves or mentions it, and I'm already out, so <laughs> I need a refill. That'll teach you. <laughs> but no, Andrew, I think that's brilliant. I, mm. I, I'll have to unpack that more, but like just hearing it on first that what especially what you said at the end. Yeah, you, you crave water, you have this desire, you're incredibly thirsty, and you drink it. And in reality, a lot of times there is an appreciation and a gratitude that comes afterwards. It really does point you once that dies, a, a appreciation can come out after it. I really like what you're onto with that. Well, and I get it in part from Lewis's second best book, The, uh, the Great Divorce. Remember the coquette who is trying to flirt with everybody, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. At least she wants somebody else's opinion of herself. And Lewis says, I think it's of her, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there that there's a spark in there that could be blown to a flame. I've seen some, you know, McDonald says, I've seen some like this, you know, be able to get over themselves. At least they care what somebody else, is, somebody else thinks. In Mere Christianity, he says, it's of course better to be a, prost- or a prostitute, maybe closer to the spirit of Christ than a cold-hearted prig. But of course, it is better to be neither. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it's the outward turning. Any kind of outward turning is a gospel move. Any kind of inward turning is a Scrutapian move. So whenever I turn towards myself, I'm getting farther away. When I turn away from myself, even to a good claret, even to some, even to a the the smell of the peas, I'm turning outside. And if I'm a careful thinker, I'd be like. What kind of universe, if I think the universe is terrible, what kind of universe could produce a claret or a smell like this from the peas? <laughs> and I don't think it was the girl, I think it was the grumbler that McDonald says that about. So that's ah, true. As your penance, you right. might put down to we have faces and reread to, uh, The Great Divorce. Well, I just <laughs> happen to have my signed copy right here, and so I'll be reading that later. All right, let's 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 wrap up this section. We have a contrast. We've got knee pleasures on the one hand, and they are relative, relative to our human nature. And as we move from state to state and outside of those moments where we really want them, uh, they just die on us. They're irrelevant. But pleasures of appreciation are different. We somehow feel that they, uh, they, they draw us to them and we owe them something. We owe them some praise or attention. And so Lewis now turns to how these pleasures foreshadow their related loves. And he says that the foreshadowing of need loves by need pleasures is pretty obvious. And he says that there are two main similarities. Uh, Firstly, in both cases, the object of love is seen in relation to my own needs. Me. That was what we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And secondly, both need pleasures and need loves, they're fairly short-lived. And Jack concedes that left to their own devices, need loves will die on us. And he says, this is why mothers complain about their children not visiting them and paying attention, and why mistresses uh, complain about lovers whose love was nothing but need love, and they've had their needs satisfied, so they are now gone. Yeah. And he says that our needs can be recurrent, and he also says that it's possible for another kind of love to be grafted into need love and to preserve it even for a lifetime. And he gives the examples of fidelity, piety, and gratitude. And it'd be very easy to rush past this, but I have to point out, he's saying these are other kinds of love. 
So without drawing attention to it, Lewis's love taxonomy, it just got a whole lot more intricate and complicated. Well, and look at what me, what happens. Fidelity means faithfulness, and faithfulness implies another. Faithful to an idea or a person or something, or faith in something. Piety, pius, pius Aeneas, for those of you who studied your, uh, your Aeneid, piety is dutiful, and it's to be dutiful to something or someone else. And then gratitude implies the recipient of gratitude. So all of these things turn ourselves outwards. And remember the big deal that I made during the Till We Have Faces season, uh, take another drink, Matt, <laughs> um, of the end of Surprise by Joy, where he says, what then of joy? It doesn't matter as much to me as it ever it did because it served only as a signpost to something other and outer. So even the need pleasures and the need loves should point us to the fact that I need and I need to something to be fulfilled. And the fact that the need pleasures die on us point towards the need for something that will not die or that will die and rise again. So even the dying off of the need pleasures points to the need for a resurrection. And Lewis quoted a new well, the, the verse from John, that unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot be raised, right? And so that's what's going on in all of this, I think. And David, I wasn't sure because we're going to talk about this next, the need, our need for God, and then how that's permanent, but we might lose our awareness of it at some point. I wasn't sure with this if I fully understood or agreed, I don't know which one with Lewis of like fidelity can make, can preserve a need love for a lifetime. So he's somewhat saying that you could have a need love that's temporary, but then when you rub or wrap it with fidelity, there's a way that can be preserved for a lifetime. That sounded more to me like just preventing the awareness from falling away, but the need love was still there the entire time. Fidelity is just keeping at the forefront of your mind and awareness that you need this spouse of yours, I'd say, for the rest of your life. Even if you forget it, fidelity like overcompensates that. Mm -hmm. Those were some active thoughts, but I, I really didn't know a lot. So I was curious your guys' thoughts, but I wasn't sure if, if it could be actually taken that way. I don't think that's what he meant. I actually think that's what he maybe should have meant. I would say all of those things that he lists, uh, they result in actions of the will. And that means that a passing need love, because they are by necessity, by definition, passing they provide a stable framework for that need love to to live and to reoccur, because he says that it does reoccur. And it's terribly unromantic, but it puts me in mind of what he says about marriage in mere Christianity, about uh, you know companionship being something that can preserve a marriage. And he gives a, a bunch of other fairly low-minded motivations for marriage. And he says, actually, I think this is okay. And in this book, I would say we see why, because the highest doesn't stand without the lowest. Well, remember, mere Christianity was a couple of years before Joy Davidman came <laughs> on the scene. But also this idea of fidelity combines need love and appreciative love, right? I have the sexual need, but I am going to curb that, curb that and point that only towards one individual. And to maintain faithfulness is to combine need love and appreciative love. I have this need. God provided me with a spouse. And then I give thanks to God that, that I have this person living in my house to, to, to f fulfill such things. So I think that's kind of how, the, how the, the mechanics of it are working. What's this appreciative love you guys talk about? <laughs> I've never heard of this yet. <laughs> well, that's the next thing that he addresses. He, he, he has a brief aside talking about, are we, does our need of love for God ever end? And uh, his short answer is no, but our awareness of it might. Uh, but he then does look at uh, these appreciative pleasures, and he says that they point towards uh, an appreciative love. Through our appreciative pleasures he sees it pointing towards something which he says really vindicates his approach about uh, the starting with the lowest and then, and then working up. Uh, and he actually even asks us to update our taxonomy from the previous chapter. We now not only have need love and gift love, but this kind of disinterested love uh, that uh, appreciative pleasures foreshadow, which he unsurprisingly calls appreciative love. And he says it can go out not only to things, but to persons. When it's offered to a woman, it can be called admiration. When to a man, hero worship, and to God, worship simply. 
and he gives another example, which I found really helpful because he, he describes all of the different kinds of loves in relation to a woman. He says, need love says a woman, I cannot live without her. It's about me. Uh, gift love longs to give her happiness, comfort, protection, if possible, wealth. So to give of self. Uh, and then lastly, appreciative love gazes and holds its breath and is silent, rejoices that such a wonder should exist, even if not for him, will not be wholly dejected by losing her, would rather have it so than never to have seen her at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you guys think about this addition of a new kind of love? Well, and I have in the margin of my book, this is where Orwell falls down, right? She has need love for Psyche. She needs to have the the love of, of her sister. She wants to give her everything. It's in chapter one. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make her a king and set her free and make her rich. But she has no appreciative love of her at all. She cannot appreciate any of her gifts unless they de- deal directly with herself. And that's that same the same thing I keep coming back to. Matt, you should not be drinking when I th- talk about the four loves. <laughs> you should be, or till we have faces, you should be drinking anytime I talk about selfishness versus love as the, uh, the, <laughs> the power dynamic of the universe. I don't have enough scotch for that. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciated this edition uh, because... Uh, so what you did there... <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, Andrew's like lifting his head. Uh, if you just think about it in relation to God, I, I first of all really loved how he did it in relation to a spouse or a woman. But in, in relation to God, the idea of worship appreciation does seem to fall in a different category than need and gift love. And I think it's a very proper distinction and one that is very easy for me to see in my own life and appreciative love. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy this is here. Well, at the end, Lewis makes an interesting point. He says that uh, really we'll be switching between all of these different kinds of love all of the time. Mm -hmm. He Mm -hmm. says doesn't think that any of them really uh, exist in their their own purity, with the possible exception of need love, because of what we said in chapter one, that human beings are by nature needful, both of God and of each other. Well, and I love the example... um from the prayer book, we give thanks to thee for thy great glory, mm-hmm. right? Um, I give thanks to you, God, not because you have done anything for me, but because you are God, right? And I think that that's in some ways a starting place. I need God not because of what he can do for me, but I need God and appreciate God because God is God, uh, because he's so separate. That's the difference perhaps between praise and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is thanking God for what he's done for us, but praise is just for who he is. Yeah. And I think that's where we're going to stop because the next two episodes, we're going to look at two impersonal loves. Uh, Next week, Lewis is going to talk about love of nature. And in the following week, we're going to talk about love of country. Ah, I love that. Love that. Mm. As someone who's read ahead, Andrew, good luck. <laughs> how many times can you say it? I read ahead? <laughs> I just want to make sure people know how well prepared I am. <laughs> but Andrew, Andrew, you're gonna have to do some heavy lifting there. I went through it just now. The very first time I go through it, I don't take notes. I underline and just take in the text, and then I go back through right. and try to process. And I don't think I underlined a single thing in these next two parts. Like just, I, I was a little bit lost throughout them. And okay. I, I just, I thought. Okay, are these just examples of it? Just trying to unpack it, except honestly, it's just confusing me. Well, let me give you a bit of advice as an inveterate teacher, and perhaps our listeners can benefit from it as well. Um, when you when you really get to a sticky bit, if reading it out loud and reading it out loud to someone doesn't work, what I would do is try to outline it. So see if you can write out the outline that Lewis had in his in front of him before he wrote the chapter. Because he's going somewhere, and these are all subordinate and component parts. So see if you can do a quick outline as to what he's saying and where he's going. And yes, I I have to admit, when I tell listeners that Lewis taught me how to read and taught me how to think, this is what I meant. In order to figure him out, I had to slow down, and I had to really kind of learn how to think well through these things. But once you do, it's just brilliant. And it just shimmers along. You just go along, you know, with it. And it makes just clear and perfect sense. It does take some work, but for my money, this is the best work in the world. Well, I hear the last call bell here at the White Horse, featured in Most Reluctant Convert, starring Max (laughs) McLean from Fellowship for Performing Arts. 
So let me give thanks to our listeners, our Patreon supporters, and particularly our top tier supporters. We are so grateful for you and give thanks to God for you, Bud and Shane, John, Kevin, Brian. We thank God for you, Kay and Monique, for Paul, for Kimberly, for Gillis, for Gary, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, and Kelly, for Chris and John, Kate and Peter, and of course, for Rowdy. The difference between David, Matt, and Andrew. <laughs> D- David and Matt. Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kate, Remedy, Andrew. Bud, Shane, Names John. mean things. Kevin. There's our there's our faithful supporters and they're waiting. And I want to picture the faces and the and the people behind them. And we're grateful for you. Well, I would encourage you to follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook, uh, and check out YouTube. There's so many riches there on our YouTube channel. So uh, we would also love to have you write a review on iTunes. That'd be incredible for us. And David has spent a huge amount of time revamping the website. We've already gotten some wonderful uh, positive feedback from the hard work that he has done. So uh, we appreciate so much your support and for sticking with us. And so we look forward to you joining us next time. When we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. 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 That's Andrew's life right now. That just means I need another. Just falling flat on his face.